Good morning, and welcome to the house of the Lord. As was mentioned earlier, my name is Dr. James Saxon, and I'm here from Atlanta, Georgia, where I serve at the Church of the Apostles. I've been there since the fall of the year 2000 and had the great pleasure of serving alongside Dr. Michael Youssef all these years, and he has an extensive media ministry going all over the world. He's from Egypt, and you might have seen him on television or radio. I tried to check to see if it was here in the Memphis area this week and wasn't able to do that. But anyway, we bring greetings to you from one evangelical church to another, and pleased to be here this morning. I have known Jimmy Young since the mid-70s. He was exiting seminary when I was entering in the late 70s, and our lives have been intertwined in some very significant ways down through the years, and I guess we've known each other well for about 40 years, and his previous secretary in the early service asked me how I could have been friends with Jimmy Young for 40 years. And I mentioned that we take breaks, so um, <laughs> you understand, of course. All right, this morning I want to talk to you, um, you know, Jimmy's a prophet. You know the difference between a prophet and a pastor, right? Uh, pastors step on people's toes, prophets amputate them. And um, I'm neither a prophet, some degree a pastor, but I'm really a teacher. And this morning what I want to do is talk to you um, about a question that I think needs to be addressed in good sound evangelical churches like this one and uh, it has to do with the condition of the american church and the presentation i'm about to do to you to you or for you is a lot of information and there's a link up here on the screen that if you want a copy of the notes you can go to this link and you'll find all this information but to follow along as we're presenting it today it's probably best not try to take too many notes because it's just too much information but you can have access to it through this link on the website. Now, if you would please, if you've got your personal Bibles handy, turn to an Old Testament book called 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. And if you have your personal Bible handy, I would encourage you to underline this verse. And it's up here on the screen if you need to see it. This is a, a notable verse in the Old Testament. I remember hearing it when I was at a conference back in the early or early to mid-80s, and I just never forgot this verse, 1 Chronicles 12, 32. And if you've turned to that, like I said, if you have some way of underlining it, I would underline it in your Bible. And here's how the text reads. It's a, it's a verse that's short and to the point, and we'll build upon it today. It says, The sons of Issachar were men who understood the times and with knowledge of what Israel should do. Let me read it once more. The sons of Issachar, they were described in this verse as men who understood the times and also with knowledge of what Israel should do. Let's pray together. Lord, grant to us today, 3,000 years later, from when this verse was written, insight and knowledge as to the times in which we live. And they may you also grant to us the benefit of knowledge of what to do. In your name we pray, amen. Now I'm privileged to be here for two Sundays. I'll be here, of course, today, and then also two weeks from today. And I'm going to try to address a question that I think is heavy upon the hearts 
of people of faith today. People that are in churches like this one. Good, sound, Bible-believing churches. And as we observe all that's happening around us, the turbulence and the uncertainty and the deterioration of our world, we are facing significant challenges. And the deterioration is so intense and so public, now through the internet and television, that this, this almost this sense of gloom has taken over evangelical churches today, the, the inevitability of demise. And what I want to do over the next couple of Sundays is I want to genuinely try to lift your heart. Where is God at work in the world today? Is He still at work? And if so, where is He? And I want to try to answer that question. But today what I want to do, though, is I want to help you to understand, first of all, the times in which we live and a little bit about how we got here. And then on this foundation, we'll add to it two weeks from today and try to bring a hopeful perspective to bear. Now, if someone were to ask the question, how would you define the times in which we live today? I would refer you to this second sentence up here that reads like this. We're living in an age of deep secularism that is aided and supported by the institutional church here in America. We're living in a day of deep secularism. We don't know how much deeper it's going to get. It could continue for a while, or it might be that God is about to do something that will shake us loose from that. But for now, we're living in a day and age of deep secularism. And the church, which is supposed to be the voice to the world, the voice of conscience to the world and to the culture, instead of confronting the secularism, is actually supporting it and advancing it. And that is a very vulnerable, dangerous place for a culture to be. Into deep secularism and then supported instead of balanced by the church. Now let's define these terms for just a minute so you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's important in a world of words that we define our terms. When we refer to secularism, this is exactly what we mean. Secularism is a system of political or social philosophy that rejects all forms of religious faith and worship. In other words, they reject all supernaturalism. They believe that we live in a closed materialistic system and that this is all that there is. Within this closed material system, we're born, we live, we die, and after that, there's nothing else. There's nothing beyond. When we say apostasy, what we're referring to is a group of people that used to hold a certain set of beliefs and they no longer hold those anymore. The word apostate means it refers to a person who stood upon a certain belief system and stepped back. The word apostate means to step back or to step away from a previously held set of beliefs and in its place that of those previous beliefs to adopt a whole new set of beliefs. So the word apostate, as used in the Bible, refers to those who once embraced the gospel and the faith that is uh, laid down clearly in the scripture, but then stepped back from it, rejected it, and adopted something in its place. So when we refer to the apostate church or a church that apostate, that's a very serious thing to do. We don't throw that word around lightly, but it does refer to the fact that the institutional American church once stood upon the authority of the scripture, and now they've stepped back. That makes it apostate. Thirdly, 
The institutional church simply refers to what we would call organized religion. Whenever rituals and faith systems are systematically arranged and they're placed within divine, defined organizational structures, this is what we call organized religion. So when, we refer to, when I'm referring to that term, what I mean is, is the institutional church in America today. Now let's break the institutional American church down into some subgroups so that you can see what's happening within the institutional American church. First of all, there is Catholicism, which um, became organized under the, the papacy in 600 AD under a very energetic, dynamic leader named Pope Gregory. I wrote a paper on his life when I was in seminary. And it was under his leadership that the papacy was solidly entrenched, the Pope, the Pope was solidly entrenched over uh, the institutional Catholic Church, and this was 600 AD. And then over the next thousand years, we had what's called the Dark Ages, and in which the church had the iron grip. Uh, there, was a, there was a merging between church and state, and the church ruled the state, none of which was healthy. And then in the early 1500s, God raised up a counter-movement to Catholicism called the Protestant Reformation. And this stood upon the shoulders of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others, and they confronted the church about the way they had, they had um, backwatered the Scripture and placed it under church dogma, and the Scripture had been lost in the lives of everyday laity. So the Protestant Reformation, the word Protestant means to protest, and what the Protestants protested was the, the uh, diminished role that the Catholic Church had given to the Bible. And when the Protestants confronted the Catholic Church, instead of the Catholic Church being willing to be reformed, it dug its heels in and stood its ground, and the Catholic Church as it was back in the 1500s is pretty much the same way today. Now within Protestantism, you want to understand that there's also two important wings within Protestantism, and this is where it becomes a little bit closer to home. First of all, there are evangelical Protestant churches, and I'll define for you in just a minute what I mean by an evangelical Protestant church. It refers to a church that stands upon the authority of the Scripture, which is what your church does. And then also there's mainline Protestant churches. Now people tend today to think of mainline churches as any denominational church. But it does refer to denominational churches, but it also refers to the belief systems that those churches actually embrace. And when we use the word mainline Protestant churches, what we're referring to are those who have stepped away from the authority of the Scripture and no longer embrace the high authority of the Bible. That is, that is what we mean when we say mainline Protestant churches, and this began in the 1920s and has now come to a full expression today. Now, also there are minority religions in our world, and it makes up about one in 10, per, uh, one in 10 people, and the groups that are listed here would be these subgroups that are minority religions, but the institutional American church is predominated by Catholicism and by Protestantism. Now, if you look up at this map, you'll see how these denominations are spread through all parts of the country. In the, um, in the Deep South, you'll see the pink and the red, which is largely dominated by the, the Baptist denomination. The blues refers to the Catholics, uh, the, the gold refers to Methodism, the yellow to Lutheranism. Mormonism is in Utah, and there you have the dense population of the Mormons in that one particular state. And then notice up in the top left corner, you have the gray color, which is the, uh, the West Coast, and that area is dominated by no religious preference or belief at all. 
it is, it is a, secularism has a very strong toehold in the northwestern part of the country. Now, if you look at this graph, what you'll see is weekly church attendance uh, in each is state by state. Utah has the most, the highest attendance in church on a weekly basis. And then the next eight spots are by states in the deep south. Tennessee would come in, as you can see, at 42%, and that's about the average of the deep south. And then as you move through the rest of the states, you come all the way to the far right side, you'll see that the states on the far west coast and the states in upper New England are the least attended churches in our country. So you can see how church attendance is spread out. Tennessee is right at 42%, which is about one in two people, and, and certainly we could be a lot better, a lot worse off than that. Now what I want to do, though, is, is begin to define a little bit further what I call a theological perspective or a theological spectrum of beliefs within these mainline denominations and within Protestantism in general. And just try to follow along with me here as I just lay this out for you. When we speak of the word conservative, what we're speaking of is a person who places the Bible and the authority of the Scripture over human reason in matters of faith and practice. You know, we have our own opinions and our own viewpoints about how life should be lived. But as evangelicals or conservatives, what we believe is that God's ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts, and that He's laid down His will and His viewpoint in the book called the Bible. And whenever our opinion or viewpoint clashes with His, reason always yields to revelation. That's a conservative viewpoint. Now, alongside of conservatism, you have these two viewpoints, neo-orthodoxy, and liberalism. The, our country was founded in its early years, the 16 and 1700s, in largely a conservative point of view. The Bible was the source of authority in matters of, of spirituality. And then in the 1850s, change agents appeared. Karl Marx with communism, uh, Charles Darwin with evolution, and Sigmund Freud with psychology. All of these men were atheistic, and the influence of what they taught and believed began to, to cross the Atlantic from the European mainland and penetrated the American consciousness in the late 1800s. And by the 1920s, this liberal viewpoint, based upon an atheistic point of view, began to take over or erode or penetrate mainline denominationalism. The liberal point of view reverses the conservative point of view conservative point of view says that the Bible is supreme, reason yields, but liberals say that, that reason is supreme and the Bible yields. So a liberal person picks up the Bible, reads it, they disagree with what they read, they simply reject that part of the Bible and follow their own reason. And this liberal point of view, which places revelation under reason, created this utopian idea that if we could begin to educate people and stop all this talk about sin, people being sinners and broken and ruined uh, by the effects of the so-called fall in Genesis 3, if we just get away from that negative thinking and build people up and educate them, we can create a perfect world. And that philosophy ran into the jaws of World War I, World War II, and the Great Depression in the early 1900s, and the idealism of liberalism was blown apart. And the liberals began to realize that that, that, that hyper-idealistic view of society that, that could be created through education was off base. So they started to come back toward the conservative point of view, but they didn't come all the way back. They only came back to the middle where they placed revelation and reason alongside of one another. 
And there are several churches in our world today that, that believe in New Orthodoxy. And if you go into those churches on Sunday morning, they'll open up the Bible and they don't say, listen to the Word of God. They say, listen for the Word of God. And what they mean by that is if when you read a passage, whatever speaks to you is inspired for you that day. What doesn't speak to you is not. So the Bible can be a dead letter and a live letter all at the same time if you're neither New Orthodox. So they put Revelation and Reason alongside of one another, and what that does is it dilutes the Bible and reduces it down to the same ineffectiveness of the liberal position. Now, after these Protestant perspective, alongside of that you had the Catholic perspective, and the Catholic perspective places dogma or church teaching and tradition over the Bible. I grew up Roman Catholic in the fifth grade. I, had, I was aspiring to be a Catholic priest, and as an aspiring young Catholic priest aspirant in the fifth grade, I thought I might as well be the first American Pope, and that was my, my hope when I was in the fifth grade. And then in the sixth grade, I threw it all under the bus, became a hellraiser, went to public school, and lost my perspective, was converted at age 20. But when I became a Christian at age 20 and started studying the Bible, I was shocked and amazed that I'd been raised in a church that believed the Bible but never taught me the Bible. I was biblically ignorant at 20 years of age when I first was converted and had to sit at the feet of the Protestants to learn the Bible. So the Catholic Church places dogma, church tradition over the Bible and they end up burying the Bible and, and make it ineffective. But then you have two more points of view. Secularism, which we've already mentioned, their view is that reason is all we have and revelation is of no use. They have no use for the Bible or any sacred writings because they don't believe in anything supernatural. So all we have to guide us is human reason, and that's what they stand upon. But in more recent years, we've seen the emergence of a, another philosophy that is taking over the hearts and lives of young people. Parents, pay close attention to what I'm saying, please. Postmodernism now is among us, and postmodernism, as far as reason and revelation goes, rejects both. They reject both the Bible and reason. Uh, these others embrace some form of authority. Postmodernism embraces none. And what they say is the Bible and any other books that claim to be divinely inspired are so outdated they're of no use anymore. And not only that, but they say that human reason can't help us because human reason, no one is capable today of describing the overarching trajectory of human life and human history. So since no one really knows how we got here and what we're supposed to be doing and how it's all going to end, we can't, we can't figure it out for ourselves. We can't get any help from these sacred writing books because they're of no use. So therefore, we are left to the dictates of our own heart and our human experience. Make it up as you go. Do the best you can. Whatever's true for you is true. Whatever's true is true. Whatever's true for you is what's true. It's a very dangerous place to be. Now, here's the spectrum of philosophy, philosophical, theological winds that are blowing through our world today. Now, let's see how these have affected the institutional church. Now, all of these churches, when we talked about Protestant churches, once stood on the solid foundation of evangelicalism. The name of this church is Grace Evangelical Church. But what do we mean when we say evangelical? Let me make sure you understand this term as I define it, and then we'll try to build on it. There are three beliefs, at least three, that evangelicals hold to today uh, that look like this. Number one, we believe in the sufficiency and in the reliability of the Bible in matters of faith and practice. The Bible is our 
infallible rule of faith in practice. That was the battle cry of the Reformation. We hold to it today. Number two, we also believe in the necessity of a personal faith in Jesus in order for a person to be saved. That faith can't be placed in anyone or anything else other than Jesus, and so that's essential to salvation. And then thirdly, evangelicalism believes in the urgency of actively seeking the conversion of lost people or unbelieving people to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Now, these are the three bedrock principles of evangelicalism. Now, all the Protestant denominations in the institutional American church today used to believe this, but they don't anymore. And let me help you understand exactly how that looks. Maybe you've never heard the term the seven sisters of Protestantism. Until I started doing research on this, I had never heard of it. And this is what the term means. Who are the famed seven sisters of Protestantism? Historians and sociologists have grouped these flocks under that label. The United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Episcopal Church, United Church of Christ, Presbyterian Church USA, American Baptist Church, and Disciples of Christ. These are known as the Seven Sisters of Protestantism, the largest groups under uh, the, the umbrella of Protestantism. Now, here's where their membership stood in 2016. 2016, just a couple of years ago, Methodism uh, held the loyalty of approximately 7 million people. Even though Evangelical Lutheran Church, ELCA, is just about half of that. Episcopal Church, just under 2 million members. PCUSA, 1.5. American Baptist, 1.2. United Church of Christ, just under a million members. And Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, right at a half a million in 2014. Now, this is where they stood in 2016 in terms of the number of adherents. And we're talking, you can see here, millions of people. Millions of people. Now... I'm about to put in front of you a slide that is going to comb your hair. And what I mean by that is that this is going to shock you, and you need to brace for yourself for what I'm about to put on the screen. Within those seven sisters of Protestantism, what percentage <coughs> excuse me, of ordained ministers no longer believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? We'll start with the Baptists, 67% of the Baptists no longer embrace the inerrancy of the Bible. Keep your seatbelt fastened, it gets worse. The Lutherans, 77%. The Presbyterians, 82 The Methodists come in at 87 and the Episcopalians, 90 now, these are the leaders. These are the shepherds of these millions of people. And the liberal position of a critical view of the Bible versus a literal view of the Bible has deeply entrenched itself in the leaders. Now, the laity, and I don't have that slide up here now, the laity is considerably higher than the clergy but they're just hanging on. And over the last several years, uh, the high view of the Scripture among the laity has also begun to drop within these mainline denominational churches. Now, what has been the effect 
upon these denominations of the leaders who no longer embrace the Scripture. Now look at this, this graph up here, and it will show you. In 2007, approximately 41 million people identified with the Protestant denominations. And seven years later, there was an exodus of 5 million members from those denominations. When the shepherds stopped feeding the sheep with the eternal word of God, people stopped going. They weren't being fed. Why should they go? If you've ever been to a church service, and I've been to a few, where the authority of the scripture is not upheld, it is a pretty sad occasion to listen to someone with some semblance of authority stand up in front of a body of people and say nothing. And that's what it amounts to. All they're doing is talking from their own reason, quoting philosophers, quoting whatever sources of wisdom they can find, but anything but the scripture, and those sermons are vacuous. There's no mission, there's, there's no power, there's no challenge in it. And so the sheep have started to scatter. And you can see the dramatic decline here. Now, if you're looking at this graph, you'll, what you'll see is the black line represents church attendance in Catholicism. And we know the challenges that they have experienced over the last several years with abuse among the clergy and children, and we're not sure at all that we've hit the bottom of that. The recent findings in the Pennsylvania diocese matched what was going on in the Boston diocese, and it's worse than awful. So I'm not sure how the Catholic Church gets out of this one because they have a shortage of priests as it is, and when they start defrocking, violating priests, it, it looks bad. But you can see that attendance has dropped from 75 million down to under 40 million. Protestantism has remained steady during that period, but not Catholicism. Now, here's where we are. The future of mainline Protestantism, given the fact that they've stepped away from the sole authority of the Bible, it looks like this. The elephant in the room for mainline Protestants, however, is that their share of the American population has seen an unprecedented decline in the last 40 years. Things are trending downward for mainline Protestantism. For instance, in the mid-70s, three in 10 Americans identified as mainline. In fact, they were the largest religious group in the United States at that time. Today, however, only one in 10 Americans identifies mainline. This drop in adherence is surely linked to the rise in religious nuns. While just 5% of respondents in 1972 said they had no faith, today is closer to 22%. So the rise of no religious preference in our culture is trending upward. In 2017, Ed Stetzer wrote that if the current trend continues, mainline Protestantism will disappear completely in less than a quarter of a century. Unbelievable. At the very least, the future of these denominations is not a rosy one. So mainline denominationalism has stepped away from the authority of the Scripture, and they are paying the price. Now, a couple more observations, and we'll end here, and I'll be back in two weeks, and we will talk about the perspective of, all right, what do we do from here? What should we do now? Now, I want you to notice that this quote applies 
to people of faith in general in America, not just the mainline denominational people where adherents where they're not, they're not being taught the Bible. This applies even to Bible-believing churches, and this is where it really hits home. Now listen to this closely and see to what degree it resonates within you. At the same time, American religious life is characterized by a series of gaps. First, there is an ethics gap between Americans' expressed beliefs and the state of the society that they shape. While religion is highly popular in America, it's to a large extent superficial. It doesn't change people's lives to the degree one would expect their level of professed faith to change them. So there's some disconnect here. Even within churches where the scripture is being upheld, there's an ethics gap. What we believe, what we say we believe, and how we live, they're not exactly parallel. That's reason for concern. Secondly, related to this ethics gap is a knowledge gap between Americans' stated faith and the lack of the most basic knowledge about that faith. As you probably can surmise, biblical literacy in America is trending downward. So even those who claim to embrace the Bible are shockingly ignorant or superficially unaware of exactly what the basic tenets of those faith are. I am the pastor of evangelism at the church that I serve at, and I talk with people all the time coming into the church out of the culture. And what we've had to do to adjust to their lack of Bible knowledge, there's such an unhealthy deficiency of Bible knowledge that we have had to stack follow-up courses in succession to raise their Bible knowledge up to a functional level so they can, they could, they can live out the faith that they've just professed. I'll tell you more about that next Sunday or two weeks from now. And then along with the knowledge gap and the ethics gap, there's also a gap between believers and belongers. And this gap represents this, with millions of Americans who are nominal Christians or Jews failing to participate in the congregational lives of their nominations. In other words, people don't go to church like they used to. In my church in Atlanta, if we get people three out of four Sundays, that's good. And not only that, but people don't affiliate with the community, the church community like they once did, coming out on Wednesday night or getting involved in small groups or going to home Bible studies. So there is a lack of density, social density within the church where the church used to be the hub of community life. It's not anymore. And we've seen the rise of e-church in which millions of Americans today don't get up and get dressed and go to church. They worship the Lord at the church of the website, and they listen to Reverend Sheets. If I can use a humorous illustration. Millions of people now go to church, what's called e-church. So the, the belonging and the believing is not connected anymore. So we have this breakdown that is causing superficiality in ways it's not healthy. One last observation, and that is broad conclusion, the norm of the average Christian is what we call a compartmentalized faith. There's some disconnects in there. And then lastly, what I want you to know is what is the fastest growing religious group in America today? Here it is. America's fastest growing religious affiliation is no religion at all. These non-religions are the single, the non-religious are the single largest religious identification among the younger people in America. Well, these are sobering statistics. They're not trending in our direction. 
The Bible says, preach the word in season, out of season. Well, folks, it's out of season. Now, how then should we live? Well, let me just ask you to do this. Don't be discouraged. Don't be disheartened by what you've heard today. I just need for you to see it for what it is. But two weeks from today, we'll come back and address this question. When and how is God at work in this world? The lines of the work of the Lord are being redrawn. Stay with me, and you'll see what I'm saying. Along with things happening the way that they are, there is unprecedented opportunity for the evangelical church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are sobering statistics. This is a sobering body of data that let us know that we are not in the healthiest of places when it comes to our faith and the religious part of our lives. And while this is hard for us to swallow because we love our country and we want to see the world, we want to see our country continue to be strong and be dynamic and we want to see the banner of the gospel unfurled and holding sway over the hearts of as many people as possible, uh, we are living at a time when things are out of season, not in season. But that doesn't mean you're not at work, Lord. You most certainly are at work. And now over the next couple of weeks, when we reconvene, let us put our finger on the pulse of where you are at work. Understand from the Bible what you're doing. And from that, draw hope and strength to realize now is not the time to draw back. Now is the time with the proclamation of the gospel to press forward. Help us with these things now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.